Amen and amen. Well, enjoyed the song service tonight. It's always good to hear the Lord's people singing from their heart, singing with grace in their heart and making melody into the Lord and praise to his great and holy name and enjoyed the song service tonight. Pray the spirit of the Lord would continue to be with us once again in the preaching of the gospel. If you have your Bibles and like to turn with me, I beg an interest in your prayers again tonight uh, that the Lord would be with us a little while and continue uh, to try to speak on some of these things pertaining to uh, the sword. We introduced to you a topic uh, in the previous message about the uh, one piece of the whole armor of God, the sword of the Spirit, and how that is the Word of God. And now I'd like us to look at another aspect of the sword, if you will, and it is a description of Jesus Christ himself. <clears throat> so let's begin reading. If you have your Bibles, like turn with me. Let's begin reading in the book of Revelation, chapter 1. <clears throat> the book of Revelation, chapter 1, um, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, uh, begins to reveal unto the Apostle John uh, the visions and the things that he would have to be written to the seven churches which are in Asia. And that's where we begin reading in chapter 1, verse uh, 10. <clears throat> the first nine verses are pretty much uh, introductory and tell us the when and where and what's going on uh, of uh, the book of Revelation. And then in verse 10 is where I believe the vision begins, because that's when it says, I was in the Spirit, capital S, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and then he begins to describe what he heard and what he saw and everything that uh, uh, the, the Spirit had uh, in the vision for John to see and John to write. Um, so it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. And he continues to list all seven churches by name. Verse 12, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw. And then he begins a glorious description. I believe, in my, at least in my personal view, my personal opinion, this is the most glorious description of our glorified Lord, our victorious Savior, our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, that we get in the New Testament Scriptures. Um, we get some glorious descriptions of Christ that are found in Hebrews chapter 1 and other places. But Revelation chapter 1, this is, this is Christ, not just, the, not just the crucified Christ, not just the risen Christ, not just the ascended Christ, but the glorified Christ. Everything that we uh, see and know about Jesus Christ today, that he is enthroned in the heavens. He's glorified in, in every way and seated at the right hand of the Father uh, on high. <clears throat> and we begin to get this glorious vision of Jesus Christ. And tonight I would like to focus on one little piece of that vision. Much like the armor, the whole armor that we just looked at, so much preaching could be done on every word and every phrase in that armor but we just focused on the sword of the Spirit. And tonight there's one phrase I would just like to focus in on because there's weeks and weeks and months and months of preaching just in this, everything contained in this vision of chapter 1. <clears throat> so let's continue reading in verse 12. <clears throat> and I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword." And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet 
as dead. <laughs> the same reaction Daniel had when the glory of the Lord showed up in vision form, the same reaction Ezekiel had when the glory of the Lord showed up and gave those prophets vision. When the glory of the Lord shows up, man falls at his feet <laughs> in, in the presence of God's holiness and God's glory. And John is no different here. Just because we're reading here in the New Testament or in the grace age, so to speak, uh, John doesn't have a different reaction. When the glory of Jesus Christ shows up, uh, and and I hope uh, I, I hope y'all understand what I'm talking about when I say this because I'm about to make a somewhat strange uh, statement. Uh, Revelation, I believe, was written somewhere in the early 90s of the first century, between 90 and 95 A.D. There's a little bit of controversy about that, but I think uh, most biblical st- uh, scholars hold that hold that view. And being assuming that's the case, this is some six when Revelation's written, it's some 60 years after Jesus Christ was in his earthly life and earthly ministry. Think about that. That's a long time. I'm just now 40 years old, and I'm, that's still 20 years away from 60. So uh, I, I, my whole life wouldn't, wouldn't encapsulate that time that Jesus has been gone from the Apostle John and from the other apostles. It's been a long time. Uh, but when Jesus was manifested in the flesh, when he was going about his earthly life as a human being and in his earthly ministry preaching his own gospel, uh, the glory of the Lord was there, but it was veiled by his flesh. Do you understand that? It was veiled. The whole glory of the Lord was not revealed uh, uh, when Christ was walking around uh, uh, on the earth as a man here uh, when he was about 30 to 33 and a half years old. <clears throat> and then he was dead, buried, raised again, and glorified. And in his glorified body, he walked around for some 40 days before Acts chapter 1, you know, we read the ascension of Jesus Christ into the clouds and the clouds received him out of their sight as that uh, great testimony is recorded there. So we're reading here. I hope you all understand what I mean by this. This is the same Jesus that was 60 years ago, but at the same time, it's not the same Jesus. <laughs> you all understand what I mean by that? This is a powerful, because in no time, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in no time did you read where Jesus Christ showed up in the presence of John and John fell at his feet as dead. Do you understand that? <laughs> no time did John have that reaction. They, uh, in fact, John was the one who I firmly believe the scriptures say uh, was the one that leaned his head upon Jesus' breast, the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? He was the one that would, when Jesus was around, John wanted to be the one closest to him. He wanted to draw in that close nearness and communion and fellowship with his Lord and with his Savior. But now, when that same Jesus shows up, John doesn't go running to him as if to embrace him and say, think how long it's been since John has seen his Savior. Uh, uh, John uh, uh, walked, followed Jesus Christ for three and a half years of his earthly ministry every single day, was with the Lord. Think about what a close-knit fellowship that they would have had a close-knit communion and just brotherly uh, love and all those things. How, how, how attached, if you will. I could use that term. <laughs> how attached John must have been to Christ. And then when Christ ascended to glory in Acts chapter 1, I'm sure at least to some degree in their natural flesh, they must have been as great as that was to witness. He's gone. <laughs> Christ is no longer here with us. And now it's been some 60 years in Christ in great spiritual glorified form and vision form shows up to John and John hasn't seen him in 60 years. You would think John would say, oh my goodness, it's Jesus. He's not only risen again, he's glorified. And I, he would go running to him and say, hug his neck and give him the brotherly or the holy kiss, as it were. <clears throat> That's not how John reacts, is it? <laughs> John sees the glorified Christ and as all sinners should have in the presence of God, holy, God's holiness and God's glory, we should fall at his feet as dead. And that's exactly what we get here. And then look at the mercy of Jesus Christ. Fear not. <laughs> 
reaches out his right hand, lays his right hand upon John, who I guess John, is, he's already fallen, his feet is dead and thinks he's a goner. The holiness of God is here and I'm a sinner. I can't stand in his presence. Surely I'm a goner. <laughs> I'm about to be vaporized or something. I don't know. You know, this is the glory of the Lord. It's brighter than our, our uh, it's brighter and just more holy and more glorious than our presence can stand. <laughs> Sin cannot be in God's glory. And yet here we have God in his glory, Jesus Christ reaching down his hand to John. Fear not, I am the first and the last. And you all can finish the chapter there. But the part that I would like to focus in on tonight is this sharp two-edged sword. We've already talked about a little bit different kind of sword, a sword that you and I are supposed to take up and use as part of the whole armor of God. And I would contend tonight and in this message that our taking up the sword of the Spirit means nothing if there's not this two-edged sword. Without Jesus Christ, everything we're doing is in vain. Everything is about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So let's begin to look at a few places in the Scripture. If, I'm, if I remember correctly, there's only two or three places in, in the New Testament Scriptures where Jesus is referred to as this two-edged sword. We already looked at one here in Revelation chapter 1. Now let's turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and look at another place where this word two-edged, or this phrase, two-edged sword, is mentioned. <clears throat> and in going through this two-edged sword... I'd like to try to present a few ways to you in just a short amount of time. Like Brother Sam said when he was up here, <laughs> try to be mindful of the time and uh, leave Brother Sam adequate enough time for his message and what the Lord would have him uh, preach to us tonight. Um, <clears throat> but I do want to present to you a few ideas, a few concepts, some food for thought, if you will, um, about what this two-edged sword is. Why is it a two-edged sword? Why is it not just a sword, but this sword has two edges? What are these two edges about? <clears throat> And I hope to present a few things to you from Scripture that perhaps go to some degree, to some length, to maybe give you a few ideas about what this could mean. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse uh, 12 says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So the Word of of God here is described to us as sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, uh, this is one of those verses that um, you could read, and since it has the phrase, Word of God, in it, (laughs) this is a very loaded phrase. This is very, as we know, the Word of God, the Word itself, has many different forms. It can take many different definitions, many different contexts, In fact, I know of at least four, and there may be more. You know, we have what we're trying to do here tonight. The preached word. That's the preaching of the gospel, the preached word of God. Then we have the written word. If we're preaching, doing true preaching, it comes directly from the inspired and preserved word of God. It's the written word. And then we also have what I call the spoken word of God. These are the words that proceed directly out of the mouth of God in the form of command that when God speaks, it is done. (laughs) Like when God said in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, let there be light, what happened? There was light. <laughs> That's what I refer to as the spoken word. When God speaks, things come to pass. <laughs> as just exactly how God intended him and purposed them to be. And then there's, obviously, I'm kind of going backwards in these things, uh, but the living word, which is the word upon which all other words are built. Uh, Jesus Christ is the living word. He is the second person in the Godhead. <clears throat> and so when we read verses like this, we have these kind of these four categories, at least four, there may be more uh, that we could subdivide. <clears throat> 
But those are the four main categories. We're left to try to use context in our, our brains to figure out, okay, which one of these four things could it be? And, you know, the very first word that it uses to describe this word of God rules out like three of them, or at least two of them. So uh, the word of God is quick. And that word in the scripture, at least here, does not mean fast, <laughs> does not mean quickly or with speed. It means living. <laughs> it is referred to as uh, just like in Ephesians 2, 1, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's the same, it's a, a longer form of the word quick here. Quick means living or to be made alive, to have life-giving power within you. We know the written word does not have life-giving power. The word itself is not quick. It has, a, it, it has the power to those that believe it, uh, but it's not power to eternal life or power to uh, those things. It doesn't have power to uh, uh, quicken us or born us again or bring us from dead to life. <clears throat> but this word, it says, is quick and it's powerful and it's sharper than two, any two-edged sword. So that leaves the other two, the living word and the spoken word. But if we keep reading in verse 13, this concept of the word of God in verse 13, he's about to refer to it, if you notice really close, Read it really slowly and closely. He refers to this word of God concept using a personal pronoun, a he and a him. <clears throat> so this word of God is not just the words that proceed out of his mouth. It's a person. It's a he. It's a him. And uh, let's see that in verse 13. Neither is there any uh, creature that is not manifest in his sight. Did y'all see it? The word his refers back to the word of God, which is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a his. And then he continues on and says, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him. So there's a him with whom we have to do. And then he finally names him in verse 14 as, it, as if not to leave any other doubt. <clears throat> Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. So is there any doubt who this word of God is talking about? I probably didn't need to take the time to go through that, but that's just kind of uh, what I like to do and, and present those four different types of word. The word of the word word is a good study in the, in the word of God. <laughs> and I know that's a, a overuse of the word, but <clears throat> the word word is a good study to study in the word of God itself. Um, and you can do a lot of spend a lot of time studying that and get all of those things out of it. <clears throat> but here, this word is not those other three. We're talking about none other than Jesus Christ, our great high priest, the one that has ability to divide between the soul and the spirit. <laughs> I've been trying uh, 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 not only just to preach the gospel, but to be a member of the church. And then before, uh, after that, I was a, a deacon before I was a minister and now I'm a minister. And that whole my whole church life, I've been trying at times to understand. I knew there's a difference between the soul and the spirit. But as far as I can tell, there's no difference. <laughs> as far as I'm able to, re to reckon and to understand, wherever the spirit goes, the soul goes with it. Wherever the soul goes, the spirit goes with it. And when it separates from this body, there's death. <laughs> there's what we call death or a separation. <clears throat> But there is some difference because this verse at least implies that while you and I may not be able to make a dividing asunder between soul and spirit, the word of God can <laughs> and it does. God knows us so deeply. God knows us not only down to the very fibers of our physical being, very every atom of our body, but he also knows us down to the very fibers of there's not even fibers. I don't even know how to there's not words to describe this. Um he knows us very down to the depths of our heart, our soul, the part, the, the, the seat of emotions, however you want to describe it. Christ knows the, every part of your being, body, soul, and spirit. And he also knows down to the dividing asunder between the joints and the marrow. And that's another, we could spend a long time talking about that, but that's still to this day with all 
uh, modern medical technology that we have and knowledge that we have, we still don't fully understand the difference between the bone marrow and the bone itself. It's a, it's a great mystery of the human body. Guess what? The Word of God, the Lord knows all about it. <laughs> he's made the spiritual part of us and He's made the natural part of us and it's a great mystery to us, but to Him, He knows all about it. This is the Word of God we're talking about. It's quick, it's powerful, it knows the depth of our being. <clears throat> this same Word, this two-edged sword, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, I don't know about y'all, but verse 13, depending on where you're at, in, not only in your spiritual life or in your walk of discipleship, or wherever you're at in that current day, <laughs> that statement will either scare the, scare the daylights out of you, or it will comfort you and give you a peace that passes understanding. That's what I believe the two-edged sword is. <clears throat> Here, the Word of God is presented to us in such a powerful way that you're telling me the Lord knows my thoughts when they're afar off. The Lord knows the words of my mouth before I speak them. <clears throat> the, uh, you know, these are things borrowed from Old Testament Psalms, Psalm 139 and others. Um, and when I read descriptions like this, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. All things are naked and open before him. God sees all. God knows all. You can't hide anything from him. I don't care how far you bury your thoughts down in your soul. He sees it. <laughs> and he knows it. You might can fool men and you might can fool others, but you can't fool God. You can't hide anything from him. And depending on if you're walking in obedience at the time or walking in disobedience, that will either scare you towards the judgment of God or it'll encourage you to a God that can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, which is where he goes with this passage. So I don't believe this passage is intended to scare us or cause us to fear, but if you're not walking in the ways of obedience, it will have that effect. Does that make sense? So here we see an instance, I believe, of a, of a passage that you read it once and you think, whoo, that's scary. There's one edge of the sword. <clears throat> And on the other hand, if you keep reading, seeing then we have a great high priest that is passing the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know basically what that says? There's nothing that you are going through right now or will go through in the future that Jesus Christ is not already touched by. Isn't that a comforting thought? There's no depth. There's no... Y'all know that other place that talks about even when we can't... I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I can't get the quote, but it's over there in uh, Romans chapter 8. And it basically paraphrased, summarizes like this. Have y'all ever been in such despair... Or in such a valley, going through a low time, a valley of life, that you couldn't even verbalize your prayer to say unto the Lord because what you were feeling at the time in your soul, in your innermost parts, in your innermost being could not be put into human language. The Word of God tells us in Romans 8 that the Spirit at that time takes our utterings and moanings and groanings of our soul and intercedes on our behalf and presents them before the throne of God. God hears our prayers even when, excuse me, when, when we can't verbalize them. That's the Word of God. That's this powerful, quick, two-edged sword that's able to discern the thoughts and intents of our heart, even when we can't do it ourselves. Isn't that glorious? 
And so even though this passage ends up at a positive place, if you're not walking in obedience at the time you read it, if you're off in the left ditch or off in the right ditch, you read it and say nothing, everything, there's no creature that's not manifest in his sight. You're going to think, oh, wow, I need to, Jesus sees all, Jesus knows all. And the same spirit that can give us comfort, which is, I think, intended here, the high, our great high priest comforts us in our time of need. We find grace to help in time of need. Amen. But that same spirit that comforts us is the same spirit that comes along and tells us that's not right. You need to get back in the straight and narrow way. And we call that chastisement, right? So the same spirit that chastises us, the same word of God that chastises us is the same word of God that comforts us. Y'all see a two-edged nature there. There's a a dual nature to the Spirit of God. It chastises us when we need it uh, and uh, comforts us when we need it. And that's a wonderful thing, but is it two different spirits? Is it two different words? No, it's the same word, but it can have two different, totally different effects depending on what we need on that day or in that particular moment. Um, And that's, I think, at least part of. It's not all of it, but it's, as we're going to look at some more things in a moment, it's not all of it, but it's... um, at least part of this two what I think the two-edged sword means. There's, an, there's a dual edge to it. There's one edge over here and one edge over here. One can cut to the depths of our soul and chastise us. One can cut to the depths of our soul and comfort us. <clears throat> and it's a glorious thing either way um, because both of them are based upon love. You know, later on in Hebrews, is it chapter 12? I think it is. He talks about for whom God loves, he what? He chastens. God chastens. God punishes us. God corrects us lovingly when we when we are often disobedience, not doing what we should do in his service. God lovingly corrects us. That's an aspect of his love just as much as what Christ did for us on the cross. We think about that expression of love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But he also so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. When we're chastised, it's the same son, Jesus Christ, that uh, corrects us and chastises us to get us back to those peaceable fruits of righteousness that Hebrews 12 talks about. God wants us to enjoy his righteousness, his blessings and obedience, those things that we would enjoy if we were, if we were in obedience that we don't enjoy if we're walking in disobedience. All right, we got to move on for time's sake. I could spend all night there, but um, now it's turned to, uh, well, I have, I've tried to condense this down. Y'all forgive me if it's a little scattered. But I've tried to condense this down to, so we won't have to turn so much. I've compiled these verses, but I just want y'all to listen to the contrast. We're going to go through some some topics and some subjects here. We're going to compare verses. And I hope in comparing these verses, you see a contrast. And what seems like on the surface is a contradiction. One verse clearly says this, and then we read another verse somewhere else that seems to clearly contradict that and say the opposite. And so how does we as Bible students, as those that faithfully believe this is the infallible word of God, how can the infallible word of God have a mistake in it, have a contradiction in it? Well, if you believe like I do, I know for a fact there is no contradictions in the word of God. So when I find one that seems to be, it doesn't mean I give up and say the Bible's wrong. It means I got more work to do. Y'all see the difference? That means I got to go to work. <laughs> that means I got I to gotta dig more. I've got to study more. I've got to ask the Lord to reveal some light to me, to give me some light to help me understand the apparent contradiction, and I underscore that word apparent because there are no contradictions in the Word of God. <clears throat> but here's some apparent contradiction. All right, another way we could present this two-edged sword, we've already looked at it in chastisement on one, one edge, uh, um, comfort on, on the other. And I was wanted to mention this before I move on, I forgot. 
um, one of the my favorite statements about what the gospel, the preaching of the gospel does. Anytime that you come and you hear a called minister preach under the power and demonstration of the spirit, preach the word of God and it touches your heart and touches your soul. Um, I heard a minister sum it up like this one time. He says the word of God or the gospel comforts the afflict, the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Y'all heard that before? Some of you may have heard it, may have not. <clears throat> but that really, I was like, wow, that's a great way to summarize this two-edged sword of what the gospel does. So when we preach about Jesus Christ and the Spirit of Christ anoints that message, it can have one of two effects. It either comforts you because you're in affliction and you need the comfort of God's Word, or you're too comfortable in God's house, you're too trusting in the luxuries of the world, the things of the world, you're increased with goods and think you have need of nothing like the Laodicean church. Uh, had and we begin to thank Lord I, I'm, everything's good I just don't need you now and that's when you're too comfortable and you need the gospel to come in power and demonstration to afflict you <laughs> afflict you in a good way to afflict you in a good way to bring you back to feel your need of him feel your need of uh, his grace in your life <clears throat> but that's what we're kind of trying to look at tonight this two-edged idea in different topics comparing comfort to uh, what was the word we used <laughs> Uh, chastisement, chastisement and comfort. Here we have peace and division. <clears throat> in one place, it clearly says in uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. So there you have the sword. Jesus literally says, I did not come to bring peace. I come to bring a sword. But if you go read that, the reason I cherry picked that verse was because to understand that verse, you have to go read it in its context. He's talking about something totally different there, and we don't have time to go through all that, but you go read it. And then there's another verse that seems to say right the opposite. And it's that famous verse in Luke chapter 2 where uh, the birth of Christ is prophesied of, and it says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace. So God, uh, God, or God manifest in the flesh, Jesus Christ, was born in this world to bring peace on earth, right? That's what it says, or that's what it's saying. Goodwill toward men. One place it says, on earth peace, Jesus Christ is going to bring it by being born into this world. And another place says, I come not to send peace on the earth. What are you going to do with that? That's a clear contradiction in Scripture, right? Nope. Simple two-edged sword can explain that, <laughs> right? On one edge you have this. You have the same Christ, but two different effects. He can chastise you when you need it. He can comfort you when you need it. He can bring you peace when you need it. Or he can... Uh, Talking about division. And what he's talking about there in Matthew 10 is, again, go read it. He's talking about discipleship. That you may have to forsake mother, father, brother, sister. You may have to forsake your family to follow Jesus Christ in the church and to be a true disciple of him. You may have to forsake some things in this world. And in that way, he's come to set, uh, how does he say it, Brother Sam, Brother Charlie, one of these men, comes to set two against three at variance with one another. However that he says it, that's <laughs> pretty close. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Y'all forgive me for not remembering that exactly. But y'all go read it, Matthew 10 there, and the other Gospels that talk about that account. Um, <clears throat> he's talking about the Lord's came to call you to discipleship, and that may mean you dividing yourself from your family. <laughs> so there's a division there, but it's not talking about the peace. Uh, Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. We know He came to bring peace to His people. And He's not only brought peace to His people in the gospel sense, He's brought eternal peace. We stood, uh, uh, our sins have separated us between us and our God, and Jesus came to make reconciliation, to make peace between us and Him. And He has successfully did that on the cross without the help of anyone. <clears throat> so we have this peace on one hand, division on the other. 
All right, let's talk about salvation and judgment. Here are three verses that clearly talk about Jesus came to save them or bring salvation in some way. Uh, Matthew 18, 11, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Uh, Luke 9, 56, For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Uh, John 12 and 47, <clears throat> And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. And the reason I said that one last is because that last statement, because we're about to go now to the judgment side where he clearly says he came to judge the world. <laughs> um, John 12 and 47 at the end says, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. You cannot get any clear language. And then listen to these next two verses. John 5 and 22, verses 22 and then 27. I'm going to read, that's a lot, obviously a lot more verses in between there, but I'm going to read the first verse of the passage, the last. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment to the Son. Well, Jesus, I thought you just said in John 12 that you didn't come to bring judgment. But Father gave you all judgment and hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. And then John 9, 39, Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world that they which see might not see and they that, uh, that they which see might be made blind. <clears throat> so you have a handful of verses that talk about Jesus clearly came to save the world, not bring judgment. And then a handful of verses that clearly say Jesus came to bring judgment. What are you going to do with that? I mean, it's not hard if you're a faithful Bible believer and you're not a scoffer of God's word. Or you're, you know, sometimes people read the Bible with a preconceived notion that they're going to not believe it, right? In other words, they're looking to disagree with it. They come to it to disprove it, not to prove it, prove it to be true or reading it because they think it's true. They come as a scoffer, reading it to try to find something, to try to find a contradiction. They can say, see, ha ha, proved it. None of you Christians are right. Um, that's, you're not going to ever see the truth of God's word that way to begin with. Um, but how do you explain some of these apparent contradictions? Again, this two-edged sword idea goes a long way to explaining some of these, what seems to be opposite ideas. Again, I've given you three verses on one hand, two or three verses on the other. How do you explain this? Well, this one can be best explained and how, what's going to take place at the end of time. <clears throat> to one, on one hand, Jesus can bring judgment or uh, when Jesus comes at the end of time, his second coming will be to one group of people salvation and to another group of people judgment. Will it not? So that's just one example. And we could keep looking at that in other places, but that to me is the ultimate example. That's the ultimate end and consummation of all things. When Jesus comes again, the world will be left and burning in judgment and his people will meet him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord and be singing his praises and uh, around his throne forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> uh, so uh, the same Jesus will come. It's not two different gods, two different Jesuses. The same Jesus will come, but the effect will be totally different to two different groups of people. The sheep on the right hand will go off into everlasting life. The goats on the left will uh, go off into everlasting fire, it says. <clears throat> so that's an, a, a way to think about that. These are not contradictions, as you can see. You just have to understand them in the proper context. And I think the two-edged sword idea helps us with that. Then the third way I'd like to talk about it, and I'll close with this, <clears throat> parables. When Jesus taught the parables and gave the parables in the uh, four gospel accounts, Jesus taught many parables. <clears throat> let's, in fact, let's just go read one, not the parable itself, but the explanation of the parable. 
In Matthew chapter 13, this is the first time that Jesus ever spoke in parables in his earthly ministry. Matthew 13. I'm going to paraphrase the first nine verses, and we're going to read verse 10. Matthew chapter 13. As you read the first three verses there, you get the scene. Jesus is gathered and they're set by the seaside and all those things. Jesus is preaching to the multitudes. He gives the parable, the parable by itself, he gives the parable to the entire multitude. But then in verse 10, his disciples, who are the, I think, refers to the 12 here, the 12, who are his closest disciples at the time, his most faithful disciples that followed him every day, no matter what. You know, there's a lot of people that followed Jesus for a short time just to see the miracles that he did, to eat the loaves and the fishes and, you know, to enjoy the some of the entertainment because <clears throat> he was a spectacle, believe me. All the miracles Jesus did, it drew a great big crowd, drew multitudes of people, but there were very few that followed him all the way to the end. <clears throat> Here's disciples, hear him speak this way, and it's different. The style of it, the parable, is different than the way he was teaching before. So they notice this difference, and they say... Uh, and the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? See, they want to know. Why did you all of a sudden just start talking to them in parables? You weren't talking to them in parables before, and now you're talking to them in parables. It's strange to us. So they asked him about it. And then Jesus has this interesting statement. I think this would shock a lot of people. If they would just read it and understand it. Shock a lot of people in mainstream, modern-day America, Christianity today, uh, especially those folks that I'm not saying this to be mean or cast stones at anybody, but... There's a lot of false doctrine out there. <laughs> and the, the Word of God tells us not to be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. But the idea that God just wants everybody to understand. God loves everybody. God wants everybody in heaven. And that's what this Word, and that's what the Gospel is for. And God wants everybody to understand the Gospel. Well, if that's true, then why does 11 say what it does? Let's read it. <clears throat> if, if that's true, then why would God reveal it to some and hide it from others? <clears throat> That's a tough question for many people to answer today. He answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you. He's talking to these little 12. He probably preached to 4,000, 5,000, 7,000 on one occasion. He's preaching to thousands of people, and yet he only gives the extra explanation, the extra interpretation to these handful of 12 people. Think about that. Let that sink in. <clears throat> Let's just say 5,000 people heard the parable. 12 people got the interpretation. Do you all get that? <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> And then they asked him why they speak to them in parables. And he says, because it is given unto you, the apostles or the twelve, the disciples, it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Y'all see that plain as the hand in front of my face. He says, I gave it to you, but I didn't give it to them. Now, if God wants everybody to see the truth, why did he not reveal it to them? He's literally saying, I'm not giving it to them. I'm hiding it from them. I'm keeping it from them, but I'm showing it to these folks over here. One, God is demonstrating his sovereignty here to do that. If nothing else, it's a demonstration of his sovereignty. Not one human being, no matter how good we might think we are at times, not one human being deserves his, his wonderful revelation, his wonderful gospel of grace. He does, God does not owe us want to show us one thing about his glorious gospel. But the fact that he does is even more... <laughs> Uh, speaks to his uh, glorious uh, gospel or his glorious grace, excuse me. But it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Um, uh, skip down to verse 13 for time's sake. Therefore, speak out of them in parables. Do y'all see what he's connecting here? In other words, he's saying, 
I'm speaking to them in parables on purpose so they won't see it. <clears throat> Think about that. Is that not for most of my life? I thought parables were had the opposite effect. I thought parables were a nice, were a, a, a natural way to state things to teach a spiritual principle. That's true, but only to the disciples to which God reveals spiritual truth. He that hath ears, let him hear. Uh, he that hath ears, let him hear. Right. That's why Jesus would always say that. Um, only those that have been given spiritual ears can hear these words, can hear these parables. So he's, uh, Jesus is literally saying to the people that don't hear this, that don't understand what I'm saying, that don't understand these parables, to them it's a judgment. It's a form of judgment. God is not revealing truth to them. He's not teaching them spiritual lessons. They're not getting it at all. And then to his disciples, notice what he says here. Therefore speak out of them in parables because they seeing see not and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. By the way, this is a prophecy of Isaiah that's fulfilled. So verse 14 and 15 tells us that. Skipping down to verse 16. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. <clears throat> see the difference? <laughs> blessed are your eyes for they hear and your eyes for they see. But these folks over here that God didn't reveal the parables to, they gave the parable, they didn't understand it. Jesus saying that's on purpose. <laughs> you think Jesus accidentally, you know, revealed it to some people and said, oops, I forgot to give it to them over there. My bad, you know, my mistake. No, Jesus doesn't make mistakes. The folks that didn't understand it, it was on purpose. And the folks that did understand it, it was on purpose. Because God, the only reason they understood it was by the grace of his revelation. And the, uh, the reason they didn't understand it is because they've been blinded. <clears throat> that's what he's saying in that chapter. And uh, so here's another way we can view the two-edged sword is in how Jesus used the parables. Jesus used the parables in another place as purely judgment upon the Pharisees. Y'all remember that? Matthew, uh, I think it's chapter 21, 20, 21, and 22. It's like th three chapters long of judgment upon the Pharisees, and it's a bunch of parables, one after the other. Yeah, just boom, 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 and Jesus is trapping them in their logic, trapping them in their heresy, trapping them in their errors, and they didn't even know it to the end of chapter 22, I think it was. They didn't even realize what was going on, and then it says they finally realized that he was speaking of them. Uh, it was like dawned on him. Oh my gosh, he's talking about us with these parables. So on one hand, Jesus would give a parable and it would be a blessing to his disciples. His disciples would uh, uh, glean truth from it and learn spiritual about spiritual things. It would be a blessing. But to those that were the, like the Pharisees, the parables were a form of judgment. So y'all see a two, Jesus would give the same parable. One edge of it would be a blessing to disciples. The other edge would be judgment to Pharisees and those that were deserving of uh, of that judgment. <clears throat> much more could be said, but time's up. I've already taken already taken too much time uh, for uh, Brother Sam's time. So uh, y'all continue to pray for Brother Sam as he comes before us and, and preaches to us once again. And I hope these things, most of all, have made sense uh, and give you some food for thought to take home. And like the Apostle Paul said, <clears throat> and encouraged us all to do, ministers and uh, <laughs> regular members alike, <laughs> uh, take these things, consider them, study them out. Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. May God bless you is my prayer. <clears throat>
with whom we have to do. That could be a frightening verse if we're doing something we shouldn't be doing, but it's a comforting verse. Uh, how many of y'all are glad you're at church tonight? Amen. And say, Lord, look at me. <laughs> I'm in church. <laughs> but if you go to a theater to watch a movie that you shouldn't be watching, you're probably glad it's dark in there. But that's not going to hide you from the Lord. He sees all things. And that reminded me of a story I heard one time about a young boy who was visiting his grandparents in the summer. And his grandmother had a sign on the kitchen wall, a verse uh, from the book of Genesis, Thou God seest me. You remember that verse from Genesis. And that sign bugged him because he had slipped out behind the barn and smoked some ragged, rabbit tobacco. Now, a lot of you don't know what rabbit tobacco is, but <laughs> us poor folks from my generation couldn't afford tobacco, <laughs> but you could find a weed that you could, wasn't, wasn't Mariana, <laughs> Mariana, <laughs> anyway, we didn't want to be seen, <laughs> I had a nephew who's, um, my sister and her husband smoked Marlboros, and they had a drawer full of them, full of carton, I mean, a packs of Marlboro, my nephew would slip some out and they wouldn't be missed. There were so many and he and I would, I hate to confess this to y'all, but <laughs> trying to make a point here, we'd slip around and smoke. And you know, that was really something to smoke a Marlboro. Y'all remember the Marlboro man, <laughs> the cowboy on the horse with the big hat? And you made you feel important till we got caught. <laughs> And I won't ever forget my mama. She convinced me it was in my best interest not to smoke. <laughs> well, anyway, this little boy would see that sign, Thou, God, seest me. And it bugged him. But as he got older and began to deal with life's problems, and I tell you, life can get hard. How many of y'all would agree with that? Life can get very hard. He was comforted to know. Thou God seest me. He sees me in all my trials and troubles and tribulations. I've been comforted by that. And uh, I appreciate the message our brother brought to us tonight. But I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> and notice a verse in the armor. I enjoyed so much, Brother Chase's sermon this today on uh, the sword of the spirit but tonight I want to look with you at a at verse 16 where Paul is giving us a description of the armor that we are to wear and then he mentions in verse 16 above all now that's an interesting expression above all it kind of makes this more important than the other armor. Now, all the armor is important. We need it all. What part of the armor would you leave off? <laughs> we need it all. From the helmet of salvation right down to the shoes 
that are uh, preparation of the gospel. But for some reason, Paul said, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench the fiery darks of the wicked. Now, faith is a broad subject in the Bible. Sometimes the word faith is used in reference to our beliefs, you know, what our faith in order. The faith was once delivered to the saints. But usually the word faith means trust in God. And I think that's what our beloved apostle means here. Above all, taking the shield of faith. Faith is vital in the life of the child of God who is fighting the good fight of faith. The apostle Paul said in Hebrews, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Did you know the only way you and I can believe in God is by faith? You can't see him with your natural eyes. But by faith we believe God is. And that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So the faith that God gives us, where do you get faith? Well, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. You can't just go to Walmart and buy some faith. It's a gift. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And Paul mentions that. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, uh, perseverance, faith. God gives us faith when we are born again. And that's vital in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. And faith enables us to believe in God. You would think the natural creation would be enough to convince people that there's a God. The heavens declare what? His glory. And you know what? The heavens don't stutter <laughs> when they declare the glory of God. The heavens declare something. Quietly, they declare the glory of God. But i tell you something else that declares his glory to me. My backyard, I have got up four hummingbird feeders and two regular bird feeders and bird baths. And I tell you, the birds have fallen in love with my backyard. And those hummingbirds, to me, they declare the glory of God. Have you ever just watched a hummingbird? They can hover just like a helicopter. They can fly backwards. They can fly upside down. <laughs> Who made that? That's God's work. The heavens declare his glory, but so do the birds and the lilies of the field. But you know, a man by nature doesn't pay much attention to all that. But by faith, we stand in awe of God. How many of y'all are just spellbound by God? Now let me ask you. If you ever just get off in nature and just think about the creation, you'll just absolutely stand in awe. You don't have to go to uh, the mountains, or even the ocean. Now, I'll tell you, they, they do declare his glory. 
But some people aren't impressed with that. I heard about a man, these, these two boys from the mountains had never been to the ocean, and they took a trip to the Atlantic Ocean, and they got them a boat and went way out in the ocean, and one of them was just in awe of the ocean. And the other one was said, you know, I thought there'd be more to it than this. <laughs> There's just some people that aren't impressed. <laughs> They're all wrapped up in themselves. Y'all know anybody like that? <laughs> I heard about a man the other day. He said he saw a fella taking selfies. And he was just taking selfies of himself. And he thought, your mama wouldn't even want all those pictures. <laughs> I'm telling you, there's people all wrapped up in themselves. And that's a small package. <laughs> but God's creation, it just speaks to us. It declares his glory. But you see, by faith, you believe it. When you read Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. Brother, you better have your faith with you when you read that. Are you just going to say, that's not possible? How could a being just speak? And create the universe. But by faith, I believe every word of it. So faith is very important in our Christian life. You can't believe this book without faith. How many of y'all pray? I suspect you pray constantly. I do. I pray for my children, my grandchildren. I, I ask God to keep his angels around them and camp around them. Uh, I pray for the churches. I pray for Nelda. I, I pray for this church a lot. But prayer would be meaningless without faith. But you're praying to a God that you believe in, who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you could ask or think. See, if your faith, if you don't have any faith, you wouldn't be praying. Uh, faith is just, Crucial. You believe in the resurrection. How many of y'all believe someday Jesus is coming back? I see a lot of heads nodding. <laughs> y'all need to talk to me, you know. Because <laughs> I don't know if y'all getting it or not. <laughs> I had a lady the other day at a church I pastored in Georgia. She came, she's an aged lady. She says, Brother Sam. My husband used to tell me, don't ever tell the preacher you enjoyed his sermon because it'll give him the big head. But she said, I just got to tell you, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I said, dear sister, most preachers I know don't have the big head. Most of them are struggling with discouragement. So if you, would get, a, if you get a blessing out of what our brother's preached, and I just come up and say, God bless me through that. You don't have to just stand there and say, you're the greatest preacher I ever heard. He'd know that was a lie. <laughs> but a word of encouragement. Now, why did I get on that? You know, I, I'm having senior moments even in the pulpit. <laughs> but yes, we believe in the resurrection. That is incredible to believe that bodies that have been dead for thousands of years will live just like that. I tell you, my faith embraces that truth. So, thank God for faith. Now, Paul says, above all, taking the shield of faith. Now, these other pieces of armor you wear, like the helmet of salvation, the girdle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes. But here is a shield you take up. 
And why do you take it up? Because Satan is going to be firing his fiery darts at you from every direction. And you're going to have to be turning north and south and east and west. Fiery darts. And Paul, no doubt, is getting a lot of this, uh, this figurative language from Roman soldiers that he was very acquainted with. You know, he, he was chained to them sometimes. He knew what they wore. And he's using it to represent our spiritual warfare. And uh, the Roman army was powerful. And their armor was very significant. And Paul is using that to tell us how we're to fight the good fight of faith. Because we do have an enemy. And it's not your mama or your daddy or your husband or wife. <laughs> Y'all do believe that, don't you? It's not flesh and blood. Now, Satan may work through them sometimes <laughs> to aggravate you to death, but they're not the enemy. <laughs> no. You know who the enemy is? It's the devil himself and our fleshly nature and the world around us. And they're always after us. And let me tell you, it's not an afternoon battle that'll be over tomorrow. No, it's a lifetime battle. You'll be fighting it till the day you die. Satan will be after every one of us. Now, I'm glad to tell you he can't get us eternally. How many of y'all believe that? I'm not worried about any child of God being snatched out of his hand and taken to hell. No, sir. They'll never perish. But in this life, many of God's children have been overtaken by the enemy. And you and I, let me tell you, Satan has no mercy. He doesn't know what mercy means. Jesus said, the thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he's after every one of us, from the little children right on to the aged. He's after every one of us. And we need to put on the armor, and we need to keep it on all the time. And then, so Paul would say, we're uh, above all taking the shield of faith. And that Roman shield was a bit, it's like having a door, really. It wasn't just a little arm thing. It was a powerful shield that could withstand the fiery darts that would be, uh, you've probably seen in old movies how uh, Indians or other people would take arrows and dip them in something that was flammable and then shoot them at the enemy and set them on fire. That was the, that was the strategy of the enemy, fiery darts to weaken those that they were trying to destroy and then move in from the, for the kill. Well, fiery darts. What would be one fiery dart that Satan could shoot at all of us? I think he used it on Jesus. There in Matthew chapter 4, when Satan comes to Jesus and says, if, now y'all listen, if, 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 if. Satan loves that word if. If thou be the son of God. Command these stones that they be turned into bread. Wait a minute, Satan. Are you suggesting to Jesus that he may not be the son of God? Well, after all, Jesus, he's let you starve to death for 40 days. And he rained down manna from heaven for 40 years for a stiff-necked and rebellious people. And he's letting you starve to death? You really think he cares for you? That's powerful. And he'll get into your head and my head when troubles come and cause us to doubt. If thou be the son of God. Wait a minute. Wait just a minute, devil. Forty days ago, my heavenly father spoke 
and said, I am his beloved son. Now you're trying to get me to doubt it? And that's one of the strategies of Calvinism. Let me tell you. That's spiritual child abuse to go around trying to convince people that they're not children of God. Are y'all with me tonight? Now you may be a disobedient child of God, but I don't want you to leave your doubting your sonship. No, sir. I want y'all to have an assurance of your salvation and your sonship in Jesus Christ. And don't let Satan get into your head and convince you there's no way that I could be a child of God. That's a fiery dart that he can shoot at you. I, I, I was visiting with someone not, well, not long ago, and I want to get into much detail because I know this is on the World Wide Web. <laughs> you know, I have to be careful anymore <laughs> with my illustrations. But I tell you, I was talking to this one person, and I tell you, the devil had him down for the count. I've never in my 74 years witnessed anyone that was so tormented and troubled because of something that they had done, which was very wrong and very shameful. And Satan had them convinced there's no way they could be a child of God. And the good Lord of heaven blessed me to preach the gospel of grace to that poor soul that night. I tell you, it was freedom. It was deliverance. I don't want to encourage people to live in sin but I don't want y'all to think that just because you have sinned, you're not a child of God. I want to tell you, we have a glorious, loving Savior, don't we? I came across a verse a while back that I absolutely love. And I want to quote it to you now. I don't need another defense. I don't need another plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's enough. That's all it takes to get you into heaven, that Jesus died for you. And you can't lose it. You can't blow it. <laughs> and you need to hold on to that glorious gospel truth. And don't let Satan rob you of it. Now, I know if you persist in a sin long enough, you can forget that you are purged from your old sins. And that's a bad place to be, isn't it? It's a bad place to be. I don't want to be there. I'm glad tonight that for... For all these years, since I heard the gospel of my salvation, I have never doubted that I was a child of God. Now, I've been a rebel at times and a disobedient one, but thank God he's never taken that sweet assurance from me that I am one of his. But Satan will try his best to rob you of that if he can. Let me tell you, do y'all? we ought to be the happiest people on earth tonight. Why? Because we're going to heaven. We're not going to hell. Would that get y'all excited? Come on, folks. Let's plug in to the glorious gospel of salvation. I don't know what's going on in your life. You may be financially broke. You may have been diagnosed with cancer. Life gets hard. But it doesn't take away the joy of our salvation. But Satan will use that shield, those fiery darts. Y'all could probably think of some other fiery darts he shoots at. You need that shield held up to quench those fiery darts of the enemy. And I want to encourage y'all to do that uh, this evening. Now, in the life of Jesus Christ, when he was here on earth, he had those 12 disciples. 
and, and he would sometimes say to them, oh, you have little faith. Y'all remember that? You would think those would be the most faithful men in the world, but no, they were struggling. You know, the night Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and got them and, and showed them how their place in the kingdom, and you know what their place was? At one another's feet. He washed their feet and said, if I, if I, your Lord and master, wash your feet, you ought also to what? Wash one another's feet. But that's my place in the kingdom. And he was showing them their place. That wouldn't fit in the government. <laughs> wouldn't y'all like to see the Democrats and Republicans have a meeting one night and they just wash one another's feet? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, from the heart. <laughs> That'd be salvation for our country, wouldn't it? <laughs> but I tell you, don't wait for that. But we can do it in the church. That's our place in the kingdom. You know where you belong at Vestavia Church at one another's feet. But it was right after that. They were disputing among themselves as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You talk about weak men. You say, surely John and, and Peter and James. No, they were right in the midst of it. They want to know, will I be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's so out of touch with the kingdom of God. And, and the devil was after every one of them. And Jesus kept saying, oh, you have little faith. Why would you doubt? And I guess he could say that to us tonight. Most of us have had enough deliverances from God's providence. To, we should never doubt again. But Satan wants you to live in doubt. He wants you to worry. He wants you to live in fear. Oh, you have little faith. You remember the time when Jesus took his disciples who were weak in faith up in a region of Israel, in the northern part of Israel, where there was a woman of, uh, let's see, I think she was a, called the woman of Seraphonia. She had a child that was sick. And, uh, and she saw Jesus and she cried out and wanted Jesus to heal her child. And, uh, and the disciples, in their aggravating way, said to Jesus, send her away. She's troubling us. That gives you some idea as to how, what kind of men they were. Y'all thought they were just little angels dipped in sugar? Well, they weren't. <laughs> They were pitiful little sinners, needed a lot of growing, just like all of us do tonight. Now, I'm sure some of you are the exception to that, but I don't know who you are, so I'm going <laughs> to preach as though we all need it. <laughs> anyway, they, they said, send, send this woman away. And Jesus, Jesus said to this woman, she, she, she just kept on. I mean, her faith was so strong, she kept asking and asking for healing for her child. And finally, Jesus said, it's not meat for me to take the children's uh, food and give it to dogs. Now, you talk about out of character for Jesus. That was. You find me another place where ever talk to a, a little woman like that. Why did Jesus do that? Well, I'll tell you my thinking on it. He knew this woman. He knew her faith. And you know what she said? She said, well, if you're going to talk.
talk to me like that, I'm getting out of here. Is that what she said? Her faith. She said, truth, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus said, I've never seen so much faith. No, not in all Israel. He took his disciples, his disciples who were weak in faith, up there to show them what great faith was all about. I don't know that they got it. <laughs> but Jesus healed the child, didn't he? See, that, that little woman was so humble, she couldn't even be offended. How many of us are that humble tonight? How many of y'all had to go to school to learn how to get your feelings hurt? <laughs> how many of y'all had to go to school to learn how to be mean, hateful, say things you shouldn't say? How many of y'all had to sign up for that kind of class? <laughs> no, that just comes natural with us, doesn't it? But let me tell you, faith in us begins to work by love. And we begin to trust God. I tell you, I want the kind of faith that little sister had when I'm praying for sick. And I, I get all kind of prayer requests for sick people and for people in trouble, people whose marriages are in trouble, uh, people whose kids are in trouble. We, we want to pray to a God who has all power, and we want to pray in faith, doubting nothing. Isn't that, isn't that how we should pray? Take the shield of faith. And let us live our lives trusting in a God who has all power in heaven and in earth. Now, I want to say this in closing. I was told this afternoon I had three closings. <laughs> and it was a little brother that told me. I asked him, so I shouldn't ask. <laughs> but it wasn't five. But this, I'll close with this. Y'all counting now. <laughs> faith is not going to explain everything to us in this world. They're just things we're never going to understand. What happened in Hawaii? Wasn't that awful? 9-11. My brother dying with brain cancer at 46. Listen, this world is full of things that you and I will never fully understand on this earth. But faith enables us to look beyond this world where everything is going to be made just right. Y'all believe that? See, faith is like a spiritual telescope. And we get over here on Mount Zion and we get this Bible out and our faith is, you know, it's just worked just right. We can see all the way to heaven where Jesus is. You say, now, Brother Sam, you know you don't see him, but by faith I do. We don't live by sight, but by faith. Paul said, we walk by faith, not by sight. A lot of things we'll never understand. I, I tell you, I, 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 the older I get, the more I realize that. But I tell you, I have a brother that's 85. He's in chronic pain all the time with his back. Um, you know, it's, it's never ending. And I'd do anything I could to help him. He had surgery last year. He's come to stay with us for weeks and months at the time. And uh, he's a minister of the gospel. But you know what? He wakes up a lot of times. He's got a clock in his room, in his little room he stays in. And it's one of those digital clocks. 
And he says, a lot of times, Sam, when I look at that clock, it says 818. And you know what that means to him? Now, y'all are going to say this is a real stretch. <laughs> but it's Romans 818. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. I tell you, that just puts it all kind of in context, doesn't it? And see, faith enables us to believe that. And we don't, we don't live in fear. Paul said, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. So if you have weak faith, I want to encourage you to read the Bible because when you read about David facing that Goliath, <laughs> that'll build your faith up if you don't watch out. <laughs> A shepherd boy facing a giant, maybe 10 feet tall with armor all over and a sword bigger than David was. And David goes out there with one stone. And as somebody said, he rocked him to sleep. <laughs> he planted one right there. <laughs> now, you know, that builds my faith. And the God that David lived and trusted in is my God tonight. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. Thank you all. Number three forty seven. Three forty seven. Three forty seven. 